It's time for Security Now. We've got a great show for you. Steve's got a big SpinRight update. All the deets coming up. Uh, there's been another Chrome Zero Day. What is that? The sixth or seventh this year alone? And then we're going to talk about ransomware, the economics of ransomware. So two reports, one on how ransomware works and the other on how ransomware figures out how much to charge you. All of that's coming up and a whole lot more next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 824, recorded Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021. Avidon Ransonomics. Security Now is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash security now and get three extra months free with a one-year package. And by Melissa. With the world starting to reopen, you want to make sure your customers' data is up to date. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for. The host of our show, the star, Mr. Steve Gibson, here to protect you online. Hello, Steve. Hello, my friend. Great to be with you for our, oops, not our last, our, our penultimate podcast of June. Uh, having learned a few years ago what <laughs> penultimate actually means. Now he uses it handy. every chance he gets. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so this is number 824 for the 22nd. Um I titled this Avidon Ransonomics. I had to look at that Ransonomics word a few times. It's what the Russians who wrote the article we will be talking about mostly used. Uh, Very interesting. Another less in the spotlight, but still (laughs) a little too much. Major ransomware as a service enterprise has shuttered themselves. And what's interesting about this one, we have a lot of, I pulled from a bunch of different sources before I quote some Russians that I found. Um, uh, Another ransomware as a service group saying, uh, we're going to stop this. Now, it's also been noted, and I did not have this in my notes, or didn't make it into the notes, that... Um, it looks like when these guys shutter themselves, it there's some notion of a market or like a, an opportunity vacuum that's created, which other groups step in to fill. So it's not like the problem's all gone away. And it also may be that this is just a change of identity. Like they're saying, oh, uh, sorry about that. Uh, uh, bl- blocking all of your Dave's gas. Dave's not here, your, man. Dave's not uh, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, and then they pop up, you know, under another name. So um, anyway, we're going to talk about that. But first, this week, believe it or not, we have yet another zero day stomped out in Chrome. What? We also have. Yeah, I know. Oh we're <laughs> it's it's tough being number one. Uh, we also have some additional intelligence about the evolution of the ransomware threat that I want to share. Uh, I want to closely look, and I 
know that you guys talked about it, although I, I didn't hear it, but I know you did on MacBreak Weekly because it was the, the percent S's were part oh, of the proposed names <laughs> for, yes, yes, it is. So a curious Wi-Fi bug that was recently discovered in iOS and what it almost certainly means about the way we're still programming today. I'm sure I'll have a different take on it than than you guys did just because, you know, I'm a coder. Um, under our miscellany topic, I want to share the SHA-256 hash of the developer release ISO of Windows 11, which Paul Therat on Wednesday... I and many others on the Internet uh, and many in GRC's newsgroup have been playing around with this past week. Um, and I'm sharing the SHA-256 hash so that if somebody wants to get it, they, uh, uh, they'll know that they've got a, a valid one. I also have a tip about creating an offline account under 11 and also restoring the traditional start menu, which those who are using Windows 10 have gotten used to and who are grumbling about the way they changed everything in Windows 11. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about Win 11. Uh, so rather than being like the author of Never 10, <laughs> as I famously was before, now I'm ahead of the game. Yeah, what the uh, hell? This is not the Steve I, Gibson I grew up with. <laughs> so uh, a new purpose, Leo, has also been discovered, and this is big news, for this podcast, which I want to share. Have you discovered your special purpose? I've discovered a, an unexpected application for the podcast, and I've decided to explain in a little more detail than I have before, because I've received some people saying, where the hell is SpinWrite 6.1? What I've been doing with okay. SpinWrite's ev evolution, which, uh, you know, it's much more than anyone might expect, uh, yet no more than is necessary, but it turns out what's necessary is more than a point release, but... That's what I promised. Anyway, then we're going to conclude with The View from Russia. Uh, I almost titled this From Russia with Love, but I thought, well, I'd already hit print oh, on the PDF. That so would have been fun. <laughs> that would have been fun. Anyway, two Russian security researchers who believe they know exactly why the Avedon ransomware as a service decided to shut down mm. and gave uh, just shy of 3,000 of its attacked keys to bleeping computer. Oh. Lawrence Abrams has them. Good. So, and of course, we have a fun picture of the week that is apropos of what we'll be discussing when we get to Windows 11. So, I think another great podcast nice. for our listeners. Lots of good stuff coming up. Our show today brought to you by ExpressVPN, as you know, probably all of you know, my uh, VPN provider of choice. Uh, there's a court case going on right now. Google's being sued, and the, the judge is kind of stunned by somebody who said, you know, incognito mode is not so very incognito. The judge the judge literally said, wait a minute, what? <laughs> but who reads the fine print? Here's Firefox. Uh, Firefox, what, what happens in a private window? That's what they call private browsing on uh, the Firefox. While this doesn't make you anonymous to websites or to your Internet service provider... It makes it easier to keep what you do private from anyone else who uses this computer. Bottom line, you could turn on private browsing, incognito mode, whatever your browser calls it, 
but it doesn't keep your activity invisible from your employer, your school, your ISP. I don't know what's so incognito or private about it. If you really want to stop people from seeing what you're doing online, you need to use ExpressVPN. It's not just when you're at a coffee shop, although nowadays we're getting out and about. We're going to Starbucks. We're going using the Wi-Fi and other locations. You better have ExpressVPN on your computer to protect you. Otherwise, your traffic is traveling to the broader outside world right over that network unencrypted. Every site you visit can also be logged by the admin of that network or your ISP or your mobile carrier, even in incognito mode. Do you really want your mom and dad to see what you've been looking at? <laughs> or your spouse? Uh, Comcast, AT&T, not only can, they often do sell that information on to marketers. Uh, it's completely legal in the United States. So, what's the solution? ExpressVPN. It encrypts all your network data, reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your IP address is not your IP address. The address you use when you're using a Google search or visiting a website is no longer yours. It's ExpressVPNs, and that IP address is used by other ExpressVPN owners. So, it really is completely anonymous. It's private. And ExpressVPN is so easy to use. You can put it on anything, a smartphone, iOS or Android, Mac, PC, Linux. You can put it on your router. It works with many routers. In fact, that's a really good way to make your entire house secure and private. And it's so fast you won't even know you're running it. Sometimes I'll turn it on and forget, leave it on for weeks, and finally go, oh, um, but why not leave it on if it's that fast? One button, tap to connect it, your browsing activity secure from prying eyes. Stop letting strangers invade your online privacy protect yourself online right now at expressvpn.com slash security now in fact if you use that special link expressvpn.com slash security now you'll get three extra months free with a one-year package it's almost half off the month-to-month price that's a great deal e-x-p-r-e-s-s expressvpn.com slash security now this is uh, read up on the service, read their privacy policy, which, by the way, is independently audited. Uh, learn about the trusted server technology they use to make sure that no logging, no zero, absolutely no logging ever happens on ExpressVPN. This is the kind of stuff you need to know. I've done that research. I can tell you ExpressVPN does it right. ExpressVPN.com slash security now to learn more. Now... Back we go, Mr. Steve. I have to say, the idea of spitting up a server instance, that is just Isn't so The trusted right. server thing, doing it in RAM? Isn't that so, clever? Yeah. So right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Picture, of the, picture of the week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I gave this the cap, the caption, Windows 11, <laughs> uh, and everyone will see why. We have a four-frame cartoon. The, the first frame, we have the, the guy saying... Let's make these changes to the current system. And he's holding out what looks like a long list of things. And so, and and she is now holding the list and she says, the current system works just fine. And then in the third frame, why do you keep making pointless changes? <laughs> and, and of course, the answer is he's, he sort of was walking away, looking a little downtrodden, saying, to keep justifying my ongoing employment. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why do you keep making pointless changes? Well, we'll be talking about Windows 11 and its pointless changes. I think you're actually uh, closer than 
this is actually close to the truth than people might really understand. Yeah. Yes. Are we done yet? Oh, no, boss. Oh, no. No, no. No. Uh, I justify my we, existence. Yeah, yeah, I'm busy. Yeah. I'm busy. I, we got, I got a whole new look for the trash can. So hold on. Uh, okay. So another day, another Chrome Zero day. Uh, as I said last week, this is what it's like to be the world's number one web browser. With glory comes some bruising. Uh, we're not yet finished with the first half of the year. Yet CVE 2021-3554 is the seventh actively exploited in the wild zero day that the Chromium team has patched so far this year. We're now at version 91 and some other stuff in the middle and it ends in 114 uh, for all three desktops, which was released last week. It resolves four security vulnerabilities, including that dash 30554, which was a high severity use after free vulnerability occurring in WebGL, the web graphics library, which is a JavaScript API used for rendering interactive 2D and 3D graphics in the browser. <clears throat> As it's formally described, and you know, this is the boilerplate for these things, the successful exploitation of the flaw could mean corruption of data, which might lead to a crash, and even execution of unauthorized code or commands. Okay. But we know that the bad guys are not going to be interested in corrupting some data or crashing the user's browser. They want executing some commands of their own choosing since this vulnerability was being actively exploited in the wild in this instance we can ignore the lesser possibilities for abuse and go right to remote code execution as having been achieved and exploited and if the cve number 30554 sounds familiar that may be because 30551 was the previous zero day fixed just 10 days earlier. This particular issue was reported to Google anonymously exactly one week ago on the 15th. And this .114 release of Chrome occurred just two days later on Thursday the 17th. This highlights the point I made last week about the turnaround speed that's required from today's web browser deployment developers. They don't sleep so that we can. Um, there are In the show notes, I have the six previous zero days. There was one in, on February 4th, then the next one on March 2nd, then March 12th, then we, uh, then we have April 13th. April 20th, uh, May somehow skated by because uh, we had one in late April and one in early June. And then the last one, the sixth one on June 9th. So Shane Huntley, the director of Google's threat analysis group, tweeted two weeks ago on the 8th. So that was the day before the sixth zero day. Uh, and something he said something at the end I don't quite understand. Maybe you can figure out what he means, Leo. He said, his, his tweet was, I'm happy we're getting better at detecting these exploits 
and the great partnerships we have to get the vulnerabilities patched. But I remain concerned about how many are being discovered on an ongoing basis and the role of commercial providers. Uh, you mean like Google? <laughs> Who do you mean? Yeah, I don't know what that and the role of commercial providers. Maybe like he's what? not talking about Chrome exploits. I mean, that's bizarre. Isn't that weird? I like uh, commercial uh, providers. I, you know, and so I I I put a link to Oh, his, may, oh I his, know what it is. Maybe not all of these are being discovered by Google's Project Zero, but by other uh, security providers like Kaspersky and so forth. And that's ah, who he's but thanking. But I remain concerned about how many are being discovered on an ongoing basis and the role of commercial providers. Well, he shouldn't be concerned about that. He should be grateful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he means know, yeah. commercial malware providers. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. Yeah. So anyway, I put his I put his, his Twitter feed link in the show notes, and I and you know I thought what, and so I went there and like read around his other like maybe I could get a clue from what he'd said before or after that tweet. So I found it on June eighth and read in the region, but no, I have no idea what he meant. So <laughs> he is a character. Look by his, you know his photo. Made me think, like, well, okay, you do look like He's a good-looking fella. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, huh. thank you, Shane, for these last five minutes of the podcast. We have no idea <laughs> what it is you're talking about. Go back but to we're, go but, back to work, Shane. But for what it's worth, we're concerned too yes. about how many are yes. being discovered on an ongoing basis because yes. you're breaking records and not the kind we'd like you to be breaking. Yeah. Keep finding them, but how about stop making them? That'd be better. Okay, so as we've been noting, ransomware perpetrators are increasingly purchasing their access. The security firm Proofpoint has been tracking the ransomware underground for many years. Uh, and I meant to put a link to their posting because they had a cool graphic like showing all the interconnectivity of all the like the, the actors you know ta850 and t you know threat actor 850 and threat actor and blah 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 and then like which malware droppers they were using and who they were attacking and blah 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 anyway they were uh, last wednesday they were released a report titled the first step initial access leads to ransomware the report detailed the means by which ransomware attackers are increasingly partnering with unaffiliated cybercrime groups to obtain access to high-profile targets. The, oh, you found it. Yay. Perfect. Uh, this is the trend that we've talked about previously. Uh, this was the way we believe the colonial pipeline attack began, remember? An existing VPN logon credential was purchased on the dark web by a dark side affiliate, and that was used to gain entry into Colonial Pipeline's internal network. Proofpoint's research confirms this trend, but puts a, bit, a little more meat on the bone. They explained that, they said, ransomware threat actors currently carry out, and oh, by the way, this is a, a new term, big game hunting so we're 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 you'll we'll be encountering that term a little bit later carry out big game hunting 
Although <laughs> I have a feeling that that's the, the trend that's going to be changing as a consequence of the fact <laughs> that the big game turned out to, to be loaded for bear and could shoot back. Uh, anyway, conducting open source surveillance to identify high-value organizations, susceptible targets, and companies' likely willingness to pay a ransom. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> that animated really animated gif is cracking me up. <laughs> <laughs> the hacker apparently does this over several days' period of time. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm, I'm no, watching this. No. <laughs> it's bizarre, okay. the way they're attacking. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. So they said ransomware threat actors can leverage existing malware backdoors to... Uh, oh, is it working with initial access brokers? That's the other new term. So we have big game hunters and initial access brokers. With it, working with initial access brokers, ransomware threat actors can leverage existing malware backdoors to enable lateral movement and full domain compromise before successful encryption. They said an attack chain leveraging initial access brokers could look like the following. So they have seven points. First, a threat actor sends emails containing a malicious office document. A user, number two, a user downloads the document and enables macros, which drops a malware payload. This is like exactly the scenario we've highlighted in the last couple weeks. Three, the actor leverages the backdoor access to exfiltrate system information. And four, at this point, the initial access broker can sell that access to oh. another threat actor. So he's already in, but he's not gonna he's not gonna do anything with it and right. himself. Exactly. Wow. So five, the actor then who purchased the access from the initial access yeah. broker deploys Cobalt Strike via the malware backdoor access, which enables lateral movement within the network. Six, the actor, meaning the ransomware affiliate, obtains full domain compromise via Active Directory. And then seven, the actor, the, the ransomware affiliate, deploys ransomware to all domain-joined workstations. So... Just like an organic virus, which mutates to improve its chances of survival, we see here a similar mechanism of action. Anything which works to maximize the ill-gotten revenue of malign actors will be reinforced. So in this instance, we're seeing growing evidence of increasing specialization within the ransomware business model. We first saw ransomware gangs doing their own work. Then the affiliate model appeared to create much larger and broader ransomware franchises. We expect to soon see more formalized dark web escrow services as uninterested third parties are created to manage and apportion ransom payments among these different actors. And now we're seeing the emergence of IABs, initial access brokers, as the ransomware affiliate role divides and further specializes into initial entry and post-entry exploitation. For many years on this podcast, we've observed the situation 
that malware was present, like a lot of it everywhere. It would get into a router border device and would typically set up a bot in a router that would contact a command and control server to await instructions. And remember how I've said several times something like, at the moment, the bad guys are focused upon the outside. They appear to be curiously uninterested in whatever network they've gained access to. And I observed that at some point that would change and that things would then get a lot worse. We're seeing the beginning of that as those initial access brokers, I mean, even like labeling themselves that, start to inventory the systems they have long had access to but haven't had any means of monetizing other than perhaps having the device participate in a cryptocurrency mining pool. But now... The networks behind those routers belonging to corporations of significant but lesser size will be examined as potential plunder targets. One of the reasons that has been one of the lessons, sorry, one of the lessons that has been learned by the ransomware denizens is that if you want to remain viable, it's far better to avoid what we might call the colonial pipeline mistake. Uh, and we'll be talking about that in a second uh, toward the end of the podcast. So uh, basically what that means is that attempting to hold infrastructure at ransom, while it may appear at first to be the mother load, brings with it far too much unwanted political and law enforcement attention. It is far better to sneak around under the radar, siphoning off and aggregating many more, much smaller ransoms. The Revil gang's subsequent attack on JBS meatpacking was another such mistake. Sure, they netted $11 million, but they also got the U.S. to start considering ransomware to be terrorism. And while Putin may bluster, shrug, and attempt to laugh it off, you have to know that he would have been made uncomfortable by the U.S. president facing him down one-on-one and making clear that this will not be allowed to continue. My point is that carrying out 11 $1 million attacks against non-name brand targets who no one has ever heard of, would have been far wiser in the long run. The ransomware affiliate model, enhanced with initial access brokers and third-party escrows, is evolving to enable exactly this. It allows for scaling up the number of attacks while maintaining efficiency as the size of individual attacks is reduced for the purpose of you know, staying clear. This creates a blur which neither politicians nor law enforcement uh, will lock onto the way they locked onto Colonial Pipeline and JBS. It will tend to make many fewer headlines, and that's the point. And remember back a few years ago when we were talking about how the networks of managed service providers were being compromised and their clients, for, and one example stands out, like networks of dental offices were being held for ransom. 
You know, those were much less sexy attacks, and no one cared much. The local FBI would have been engaged, but those attackers never became big news. We watched them on this podcast and were aware of them, but they were not cocktail party and casual dinner conversation. I said earlier that anything which works to maximize the ill-gotten revenue of malign actors will be reinforced. The clear takeaway from the recent high-profile attacks is that those were a mistake, and we have to know that the entire ransomware industry watched and learned. What they learned was that the way to get rich is to streamline the system. Don't attack big. Attack small and attack more. Distribute the pain and distribute the influx of cryptocurrency. To remain under the radar is to remain in business. The gangs that learned that lesson and keep their money-grubbing affiliates in check are the ones who will remain active in the long run. Okay, so uh, a weird and fun bug hit iOS. Um, An interesting and somewhat humorous bug was discovered in iOS's parsing of network SSIDs. There's long been a concept in programming languages, at least since Fortran, uh, because I recall it being there, of using a so-called format string to describe the shape of the contents of either incoming input to a computer or the way some output variables should be formatted for presentation on output. So, for example, an output greeting might be formatted as a string, hello, space, percent sign, S, where when that format string is used, the percent sign S tells the computer that the next argument to the function is assumed to be a pointer to a string. In this case, the percent is known as an escape character, and the character or characters that immediately follow it specify the details of the format. The percent is called an escape because it signals the text parser to stop treating the input string at that point as literal text sent to the output and instead to insert some special formatting control. So, for example, percent %d might tell the parser to, cre- to treat another argument as a date and to format it accordingly. And if the programmer wants to actually output a percent, then percent percent is often used. Okay, with that bit of background, a security researcher who was poking around at iOS somehow discovered, and don't ask me how, he, he'd, he'd like, well, let's try this, see what happens. He discovered that if a Wi-Fi network's SSID name, you know, the name like that you see in public when you like, you know, it comes up in a list of you can join any of these networks. So that's that's the name that the beacon is broadcasting, the SSID. If it is set to percent sign 
P percent sign S percent sign S percent sign S percent sign S percent sign N. So percent sign P, then four S's, you know, percent sign S's and then percent sign N. And an iOS device then attempts to join any Wi-Fi network having that name, the device's Wi-Fi would become immediately and semi-permanently inoperative. A restart reboot would have no effect, and all logon attempts to reverse that change would fail. Any attempt to re-enable the Wi-Fi subsystem to fix the trouble would immediately crash before the user could use the subsystem to resolve the problem. So this is one of those things that's sort of our collective fault in the security business but and more broadly the programming business really by choosing a programming design pattern which places convenience way in front of security. One of the things that must be done when a string that's under the user's control might be processed by code that's parsing for escape sequences is for the user-provided string to be explicitly de-escaped first. In the example case I provided above, this would mean doubling up any percent characters so that they would be seen as the percents that they were apparently intended to be, rather than as the active escape sequence, which would cause the parser to reach for a subsequently provided argument, which in this case would be absent and would almost certainly lead to a crash. So what must first have happened is that the SSID string, which itself looked like escape formatted text, confused some formatting parser somewhere in iOS and likely caused the the internal Wi-Fi system to completely hard crash and crash and crash and crash. So the concern was that as news of this spread, and I mean every tech uh, site that I saw, you know, had fun, you know, spreading the news, that the concern was that as news of this spread, annoying jerks would immediately begin exploiting the discovery. And indeed, that did happen. Postings began to appear telling naive users that they could obtain much faster Wi-Fi by renaming their access points accordingly. Shh, don't tell anyone. And of course, you know, when they did that, their, their, all their iOS devices crashed. Fortunately, after some additional experimenting, it was discovered that the device's Wi-Fi function could be restored by going to Settings, General, Reset, Reset Network Settings. That would flush out all of the existing sticky stuff and resolve the problem. So how do we get into this trouble in the first place? We would really have to say that it was, langu- it was lazy language design. 
the practice of mixing special meaning control text in with literal text is nothing less than a kludge. Some form of separate out-of-band specification should be used to govern such formatting. Mixing those functions into, you know, together into a single stream is a recipe for disaster. So why do we do it? We do it because it is so much easier to do it that way. And as a result, many languages do. Recall that when an HTTP GET query contains arguments, they take the form of a question mark followed by the the name, an equal sign, and then a value, so-called name-value pairs. And they're joined with an equal sign. And those name-value pairs are separated by ampersands. But what do you do, you know, but how do you have a name or a value containing an equal sign or an ampersand. Once again, we're mixing literal text with control characters. It can be done safely. You know, I I lived in that world throughout Squirrel's development since there was a lot of that going on, and I was terrified of making any mistakes there because they would almost certainly be devastating and because, you know, it's so easy to make a mistake. Languages, protocols should not be designed so that it is easy to, I mean, like, like you almost have to do it wrong. It is so, so difficult to do it right. You know, and indeed... Countless mistakes have been made through the years with this HTTP formatting since the very beginning by by web programmers who were not being sufficiently concerned and cautious because, you know, the system is begging you to make a mistake. You know, and while I'm certain that the details of iOS's Wi-Fi are different in detail, um, and that the problem will be trivial to repair, it does appear that exactly this problem is what just bit Apple. So did, it's... Uh, uh, did, uh, the, pardon me? Go ahead. I was going to ask, ask if the MacBook Weekly guys had yeah. any additional No, I, I explained that it was a format string. Yep. Uh, percent %p is a pointer. So what you would do normally is say printf, and you'd put the format string in, and then you'd follow it by the things that correspond to each of the items. So percent of the R P, arguments. You'd have right. a pointer. Percent S is a null terminated string, so you'd have four strings, and then you'd have a new line. Uh, I'm guessing that what that actually got interpreted is as, as a pointer with four zeros. In other words, a null pointer, right? And that crashed yeah. it. But I don't, who knows? What they, maybe they do some URL encoding with it. They're doing something weird with it. And you're right. Why aren't they sanitizing those inputs? It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't trust everything that comes in over the transom. (laughs) Yeah, again, uh, the the and that's the point is you you shouldn't have to the 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 language design should not be such that it's this easy to make that mistake. This mistake keeps happening over and over and over because the language design is insecure. It's lazy. Yeah, it's, it's so easy and convenient well, that's that that's C. what many languages and, do. And I'm guessing 
that it, it is C that this whatever code is handling it is written in or objective C maybe but um, that was the whole point of C was it lets you do anything dereference yep. pointers reference pointers point to any part of memory uh, you know allocate memory at random overrun it at any, any point that's the point of C uh, C lets you do anything. Right, and it's popular comes. because programmers are jocks, and you know, <laughs> we love it's like, it. get out of my way. C's I don't want great. any, mem- and I don't, I don't want I any won't garbage make a mistake. Oh. I want to collect my own garbage. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> stay out of my garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, again, I, the, the, this is like for our podcast, such a perfect example of something that should not have happened because. It shouldn't be up to the programmer to be like to be careful against the 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 built-in mechanisms of the language they're using. They shouldn't be using a language that can do this that way. But we are. So uh, a little bit of miscellany. Uh, Paul Thurot, I, and many of those in GRC's news groups. And most of the rest of the world, who have been curious, have been playing around with Windows 11 since last Tuesday when a development release ISO image first appeared on the Internet. The moment I saw that the ISO had leaked, I went searching for and found it. Links were not difficult to find. And I'm sure that they're still not today, as this has spread now even further and wider than it had a week ago. A couple of thoughtful listeners also DM'd links they had found. For the most part, the links tend to be transient since they're being removed by the powers that be as soon as they're found. But even if I had stable links, I would be uncomfortable using this podcast to reshare them since Windows 11 isn't officially released and its sharing could reasonably consider promoting the use of of what is essentially pirated commercial software. The fact that it's been and is being so widely pirated doesn't make it any less so. What I can do, however, is to protect our listeners. We can offer our inquisitive listeners some protection in the form of the SHA-256 hash of the known-to-be-valid ISO file. That way, anyone here who believes they may have obtained the ISO from who knows where can readily verify its validity and safety for themselves. Being very very cautious myself, last week I downloaded many of these (laughs) 4.8 gigabyte apparent Win11.ISOs from very different sources and checked each one's SHA-256 hash. They all matched, so they were all valid. And I also confirmed that with some other hashes that others were also making. This SHA-256 hash in the show notes, I've got the whole thing there. It's first 32 bits. It starts out with B8426650. And the last 32 bits, it ends with 6DA60DCB. Those 64 bits alone, the first 32 and the last 32, provide one 
in 18.4 times 10 to the 18th verification strength. So if your hash begins and ends with those, you're okay. Um, there, for anyone who's interested in making a hash, there are various Explorer shell context extensions to show the hashes of files which are right-clicked on, but Windows has two built-in commands to do the same job. There's a standard command prompt command. It turns out that the Windows cert util, C-E-R-T-U-T-I-L, has a hash file forming function. You say cert util hyphen hash file, and then the file name, and then SHA-256. I've got this shown in the show notes also. And then PowerShell has a built-in function, and it defaults to SHA-256. It's capital G-E-T hyphen capital file capital hash, then the the file name. Hit enter. It'll, it takes a while uh, for a 4.8 gig file, but in both cases, you'll get the hash and you know, I haven't seen any instances of malicious ISOs, but you got to know somebody is going to create one. So if you do go get this, and if you're curious, uh, take the time to make sure that the hash matches the one that I've listed. Um, and having played around with it, it is indeed Windows 11, and I have to say, oh, <laughs> it is truly gorgeous it is very pretty but leo i'm a bit disappointed because i keep encountering plenty of pointy corners <laughs> it's supposed to be rounded <laughs> it's exactly now it occurred to me that it might be that the extremely high resolution of my monitor is not being compensated for so that the subtle visual rounding is being lost I believe that on that machine, I have my text scaling set at least to 150 because the resolution is so high. So what that would mean is if, they, if they're rounding with a bitmap, then they're not scaling the rounding as they're scaling the text in order to you know, keep, the, keep the effect of the rounding the same. Maybe they'll fix that. Uh, but for whatever reason, what I'm seeing still seems quite pointy in places. Um, there are reports of Win 11 install failures on older machines. Um, and when I heard you and Paul and Mary Jo talking about it last Wednesday, Leo, one of the th- reasons they were conjecturing that Microsoft may have done a Windows 11 is to, like, promote the sale of new hardware. Yeah. It's like, hey, you want 11? Get it on this new, you know, get it on this new machine. Um, but... It's, what's curious about that is it's certainly going to be able to upgrade over 10. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting is that Windows 11 refuses to run due to the desktop or whatever machine is running on, but probably a desktop because laptops are better this way, not having a trusted platform module, not having TPM and thus being unable to support Windows Secure Boot, which requires TPM. 
support for secure boot has always been optional for Windows 10, but we have heard that, and now the industry is confirming, that for some reason Microsoft has decided to make it mandatory. That is, Windows 11 must have a trusted platform module. So that would rule out its use if it hadn't already been worked around. And maybe they'll they'll stomp that out by the time it gets to release. Remember, you're not um, using a release version. In fact, there's a right. lot of things missing from what yes. you're using. We know that. So it is a it is a dev release. So anyone running running Windows can first of all check for the presence of their hardware's platform's TPM by running a little snap in. It's just called TPM.msc. So you know, hit the Windows. R, you know, the Windows key and then R to open the run dialog, then enter tpm.msc and hit enter. That'll launch the TPM configuration applet. It's built into Windows. 7 has it, uh, and I'm sure everything since does, uh, and see whether the system agrees that it's got a TPM. Uh, that'll tell you whether that platform will eventually run Windows 11. Um, there, I have links to two instances of web pages talking about the problems people have had last week installing Windows 11. Uh, Fossbytes.com has, uh, you know, is one of them, solve TPM 2.0 error installing Windows 11 fixed. And basically it involves taking one particular file from the Windows 10 and substituting for Windows 11. Maybe Windows 11 will end up fixing that or, you know, double checking for it. Depends upon how much Microsoft cares about about locking this down. I don't know uh, what, what their position will be. Um, oh, and one other really interesting thing. I'm sharing this mostly because it came from one of our own very uh, active uh, people in GRC's news group where, where he discovered this. The other potential potential gotcha hit people who do not wish to log in to Microsoft during the installation. And I didn't want to because, I mean, this wasn't official, right? You know, Windows 11. I didn't want to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to log in with, log on with my Microsoft account. Uh, no. Uh, but so you'd like to create an offline account. Although Windows 10 Pro allows for bypassing this in the setup UI, the home edition of Windows 11 does not. So if a Windows 11 is being installed on actual hardware containing a built-in Win 10 Home OEM key, it won't give you the option of which version of Windows 11 you want to install, as I got when I, I installed it on a, on a virtual box uh, in a virtual box VM instead it'll insist upon uh, using the installing the home edition and that in turn insists upon the creation of an online account in win 11 pro it offers the I don't have internet option to bypass the establishment of a, of a of an internet connection but that's been deliberately removed from the options for the home edition okay so here's the surprise. There's a workaround. Uh, a guy named Adam, whose moniker is Warwagon, in the GRC Security Now news group, discovered that it's possible to simply close the insistent 
let's connect you to the internet dialogue by by hitting the alt f4 key combination well anyone who's used windows and is you know likes the keyboard knows that alt f4 is the quick shortcut for killing an app it's you know the the same as going up into the uh, context menu and closing you know close or exit or whatever it just turns it just terminates the app so adam discovered that uh that works for this uh let's connect you to the internet dialogue uh reading from oh oh, he also told the guys at neowin and they wrote the following he said they they said however here's where adam's simple workaround came in handy which is both amusing and surprising when windows 11 home prompts users to connect to a network a simple alt f4 shortcut closes the prompt and the screen proceeds directly to the local account creation page something that is never offered to users in the usual process this bypasses the entire microsoft account login screen which is a nifty little trick for those who want to avoid signing into their accounts during the out-of-box experience process especially in these early days when most installs of the os are happening on virtual machines so actually under a virtual machine you do get the choice of which version you want to install i chose pro uh, but you can choose anything you want so anyway just a neat little tip oh and um, those who are not fans of the new positioning and look of the windows 11 start menu those you may know that it creates now there's like a the bar that you of items that you can click on that used to be over on the left the shortcuts they've now float in the middle continually recentering themselves as new additions appear uh, and the start menu is on the left but floating with them in this group very looking very much like a macintosh dock uh there is a reg key setting uh uh h key current user software microsoft windows current version explorer advanced and once you get to the advanced key there's a whole bunch of little settings you will see start underscore show classic mode which will currently have a zero in it just change it to a one reboot and then you get the the, as it's as the name sounds show classic mode you get back to the the menu you're used to from windows 10 and finally leo before we take our second break we have the new purpose that has been identified for the security now podcast oh yeah what's that this was this was tweeted from someone whose whose moniker is lost world uh, at bruin 144 he wrote security now just the sound of the podcast by itself <laughs> removes intruders what for the second time, he wrote, in a few years, I have used Security Now playing on an endless loop to remove intruders, raccoons, from my attic. A few years ago, a mother raccoon and her babies invaded an inaccessible to humans part of my attic. I put a speaker wish where she could hear it. And because raccoons 
don't like the sound of people talking, you and Leo prompted her to decamp. <laughs> Why did he include me in this? It could have just been you. <laughs> this week, a new raccoon defeated my security measures and moved in. 18 hours of security now later. Chase any vermin away. <laughs> he moved on and out, and I repaired the mesh he had pulled down. Wow. So just a tip to our listeners. <laughs> if you have a problem with raccoons. Security now. A, it yeah, rids you of raccoons. In less than a day, you will be raccoon free. <laughs> That's hysterical. Hey, I want to correct myself. I said we were talking about that uh, SSID string. And uh, uh, in C++ and C and Python and many backslash languages. Backslash N, for example. Backslash N. It, percent N yeah. is worse. Uh, the last character in that string, percent N, the corresponding argument. I'm reading from the C++ documentation. The corresponding argument must be a pointer to a signed int. The number of characters written so far is stored to that location. So oh, I'm God. guessing... Who designed C++? <laughs> oh! So, I mean, you should not be able to print F to a memory location. But that's what this does. So I'm guessing that really is... That's that last character there. That's the real killer. It's uh, surprising you still have a phone after <laughs> that happens. So P, uh, %P is a pointer. %S is a string. %N doesn't print anything at all. It just stores what's come before it into a oh. arbitrary memory location. Oh, God, just shoot me now. <laughs> no wonder it crashed the phone. Good Lord. And and you're right. Why would printf have that capability? It turns printf into a poke, basically. W crazy. Crazy. Um, so WS printf would uh, send that to a to a buffer, and right. so you might want to know how many characters had been stored in the buffer in order for like centering text on a line, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, so, but I bet you people but, use but again, it for a poke. Talk about dangerous. Yeah, talk about dangerous. It's like yeah, no, no. You, I think you. I would always assume that th these printf commands print to standard out. Uh, not to memory. <laughs> That's terrifying. Uh, WS, WS does. WS printf does yeah. exactly that. And, yeah. yeah, interesting. I've and it uses use the one. same format string. Yep, yep. Well, that's probably it. Is these format strings are general? They're generalized for all different kinds of uh, uh, stuff. Um, it can optionally. Uh, wow, just crazy, crazy. Our, our show today brought to you by those great folks at Melissa. If you've accidentally uh, printed F to your contact list and and screwed up all of the zip codes, maybe you need address verification. With the world starting to reopen, you want to get reacquainted with your customers. You want to make sure your customer data hasn't gone bad. But did you know 30% of customer data goes bad every year? Stop throwing money away. Let Melissa help you, help you fix it. Melissa, they're the address experts. They make sure your data is accurate and current. So you reach the right customers. Their tools have helped businesses maintain fresh data for over 35 years. Over 10,000 businesses trust the address experts. In fact, with a renewal rate of 85%, that means companies love Melissa. They, they come back again and again. They find it really, really useful. That's an incredible renewal rate. 
means you know Melissa will work for you too. You can verify addresses, emails. It's very modern now, you know, phone numbers, names. In real time with Melissa, Melissa's global address verification service can verify addresses for over 240 countries and territories, even at the point of entry. So if you're customers are filling out a form or your customer service rep is filling out a form it can correct it as they're entering it and if you're tired of having duplicate information in your customer database that's actually almost as bad as bad information i was receiving the same catalog from a company the same name and address i got four different versions of the same catalog no same versions four different copies of the same catalog uh, year after year for some time. That that just costs, that wastes money. It's annoying to your customers, too. Melissa's data matching will help eliminate clutter and duplicates, increase the accuracy of the database, and thereby reduce postage and mailing costs. You can even beef up your customer profile, add demographic information like marital status or social media handles. Melissa's flexible deployment options offer different platforms to suit your needs. You can sure you can run it on-prem, but you can also run it as a web service. They have secure FTP processing, so you can upload a, a, a contact list and download the cleaned-up version. Yeah, there's software service as well, and, of course, they have great APIs, uh, which means you can add it, as many do, to their customer service or data entry uh, software. Melissa has their new lookups, L-O-O-K-U-P-S. It's on iOS and Android, which will let you search addresses, names, and more at your fingerprints and validate them. And don't worry, your data is secure. It's private. Melissa continually undergoes independent security audits to reinforce their commitment to data security, privacy, and, of course, compliance requirements. They're SOC 2, HIPAA compliant, GDPR compliant. That's really important. Melissa's Global Support Center is there for you. They offer 24-7 world-renowned support if you sign up for a service agreement. So inquire about that today. Another reason people just don't leave Melissa. They love it. Melissa is still supporting communities and qualifying essential workers during COVID-19. It's still a problem. Your organization could qualify for six months of free service. Just apply online at melissa.com. And congratulations, by the way, to Melissa. Just named a leader in address verification by G2 Crowd. It's in their spring 2021 report. Good job, Melissa. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started right now. 1,000 records clean for free. How about that? Just go to melissa.com slash twit. Like the girl's name, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, melissa.com slash twit. It's as easy as one, two, three to get fresh data from Melissa. It just feels good. Uh, all right, Steve. Back. Now, just so that people realize, oh, that you've I was got it. Rhetorical. You're not making that up, man. He's no, got this it. is Sustrip's Su- Su- book, original. Yes, wow. C plus plus book. So wait a minute. Show it. Said, show the binding. That's too thin. That can't be the real thing. Where's the? F- <laughs> I have the other one. That that's really thick. Well, this one was the original 1991. Oh, okay. Book. So you know, my C++ book from Stustrup is like a doorstop, which is yeah, all this it's thing good is for. The, this is the spec. So, oh, I get it. So know. it is. It's very terse. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, ba- it is Bacchus the, now as, as, as format. It says, uh, down there, ANSI based document. Oh, that's why. Yeah, my book yeah. is actually like here's how you learn C++. 
which I quickly try, gave up on, by the way. I was going to say, try, try to forget language. it. Ugh. Ugh. I yeah, loved it C. Was, loved it. I do. Yeah. And it's, you know, C++ is largely now regarded as a as a mistake. Yeah. So it's like, well, okay. I bet it's still the number one language, though. We, uh, Maybe JavaScript or Java have superseded. I don't know. Yeah. Actually, I think JavaScript is last I saw. Yeah. We've talked about that from time to time yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, I received a Twitter DM last week where one of our listeners asked, what, what the hell is going on with Spinrite, and when are we going to get it? Uh, so that, you know, after my working on Squirrel, apparently without end, I, I think that's a reasonable question. And it reminded me that everyone in GRC's Spinrite.dev newsgroup knows exactly what's going on and where things stand because I periodically let them know. But, you know, that's a small fraction of the people we have listening to the podcast. And since everyone owns some local mass storage that they care about, and since I know that many of our listeners own Spinrite 6 and are looking forward to this next release, I suspect that it would be reasonable to assume that most of our listeners would be interested in having some better sense for what is happening while they are being patient. This guy, not so much. Uh, and because this version 6.1 project has grown into so much more than I expected, I wanted to take a bit of time today to provide a bit more visibility into what I've been up to. The last incremental development release of the work on Spinrite had the new Spinrite code finding all of the system's mass storage devices, regardless of how they were interconnected to the system. It also determined the most comprehensive way that each device could be interfaced. For example, a SATA drive attached to an AHCI controller port will be visible through the BIOS and perhaps with BIOS extensions, but it will also be visible directly through its hardware, which Spinrite is now able to access directly. So the last test that I released for everyone to play with was enumerating all the drives and showing all of each drive's relevant data far more comprehensively than any previous release of Spinrite had. That release went amazingly well actually much better than I expected, probably because we've been moving forward carefully and leave only fully tested and verified code in our wake. After that, the next thing I had planned to do was to bring the drive benchmarking system online. Since Spinrite's built-in read performance benchmarking would have to be testing the read channel of every drive. So exactly one month ago today, on May 22nd, I posted an update under the subject, One Thing Leads to Another, <laughs> which was the beginning of the trouble I found myself stepping into. So I want to share that post and the four subsequent posts I've made since about what I'm doing with Spinrite. Even if you're not interested in getting your hands on 6.1, anyone who's interested in computer technology will probably find this little bit of snapshot interesting. So, May 22nd, one thing leads to another. I wrote, gang, it occurred to me last evening 
that by the time I have the benchmarking system running for everyone to test, this thing will be close to finished. Everything is interconnected, and one thing led to another. I said earlier that in order for the benchmark to be able to read sectors from the drive, it would need to have a lot of the system rewritten and running. That's turning out to be more true than I realized at the time. One thing leads to another, and I've been busily following those leads. A very useful thing that um, a very useful thing has been that I know what lies beyond version six one. That's coloring many of the decisions I'm making along the way. I'm not really writing just for this, but also to be, to a very large degree, for this to be a near-term future where we're joined by native drivers for USB and NVMe. This next spin write will have an architecture that's ready to accept them. Yesterday, I came up with a slick encapsulation for SpinWrite's I.O. work, a single function that replaces all of the scattered I.O. throughout SpinWrite. The problem was that sometimes SpinWrite needs to use real mode 16-bit segment and offset buffers in low memory. For example, the BIOS only knows how to transfer there. And sometimes it's able to use a 32-bit linear buffer in high memory. For example, when I'm able to use the hardware directly. And in order to reduce the consumption of low memory, some working buffers that used to be in low memory can now be moved into high memory, since for the first time ever, Spinrite 6.1 will be running in flat real mode. So I explained. So each drive um, seen by Spinrite can be one of five different access classes. BIOS only, extended BIOS without hardware access details, extended BIOS with direct hardware access details, an IDE or SATA drive on the PCI bus with bus mastering, or a SATA drive on PCI with an AHCI controller. And then each of those, I've got a little notes after each of those five, uh, which shows which of those the following six things apply to. Limited to max CHS, that's cylinder head sector size, which is 28 bits, 137 gig, potentially any size drive, access to the entire drive plus smart and the smart log data, segmented memory transfers only, that is lower 16-bit region, you know, below 1 meg, possible use of large sector count transfers and linear RAM in high memory and 16 megabyte 32K sector transfers to high memory. So you actually sort of end up with a grid of different access types and and then the details that each of those access types applies to. This all needs to get figured out. So I said I already had the concept of selecting a drive into context, which has traditionally been shown by Spinrite's selecting drive for use screen. That concept has matured significantly to become much more generalized, flexible, and comprehensive. 
Yesterday, I realized that all of Spinrite's data transfer work could be merged into just three generic types, transfer to from a single sector buffer, transfer to from a single sector scratch buffer, and transfer to from a track buffer. In each instance, the location of the buffer, the means of performing the transfer, and of obtaining the results will depend upon that drives the drive that's currently selected into context. The details of that specific drive and the hosting system's BIOS features. So this new function, named just I.O., will encapsulate all of those specifics. I call it with a function code to specify the type of transfer I want. It obtains the starting sector number, which is now 64 bits, from global memory, and the length of the transfer is implied by the operation, a single sector or an entire track. But then the length of the entire track is also obtained from memory uh, and by the specific drive's characteristics. There will also be a generic move function to move data between the sector buffer and the track buffer, and my code will not need to worry about which of the buffers are in use because the context will know. Spin. So then I said, I explained, Spinrite never had nor needed anything like this before, since until version 6, everything ran through the BIOS exclusively. And at version 6, the BIOS was only being bypassed for a subset of special case accesses. That is all the extra data recovery that I was able to add to version 6. Now I finish with the beauty of this abstraction is that it cleanly divides the drive characterization, which populates the drive features database and all subsequent drive access I.O. from the logical operational parts of Spinrite. And moving forward into the future, when things like subtle read timing features are added, the functions offered by that single I.O. function can be augmented. So, so so that was the end of the first post. And essentially what I've done is I've I've used an object-oriented philosophy to create a clean demarcation between the 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 way the IO is being done to individual drives by the way they're connected and the technology the the the, the best technology that I have to access that drive that's one side of the divider, the other is all of the stuff Spinrite needs to do to access the drive. But but those things don't change depending upon the drive. So I'm able to create an abstract function, which is what I have, this I.O. function that that allows that. Then on the 29th of May, that was on the 22nd, so a week later on the 29th, one of the things that happened as I was working through the code, I was looking at I'm moving one of the big buffers that's in low memory into high memory because that just frees up low memory, which is still resource constrained. I ran across a whole bunch of code for the logging system, and and, and I looked at it, and my so and the, the the I was on the mission of like changing that from running on a low memory located log to high memory. But I stopped myself and said, wait a minute, do I even want this anymore? Because 
the way it has always worked is that Spinrite would maintain a log in the root of the drive that it was working on, and the user could specify how many previous logs to retain. So all this code that I was looking at, and there was a bunch of it, uh, it looked at the old log and it parsed the old log to count, like to find where was the the beginning of the the beginning of the first log entry that was older than the user's configuration setting now said they wanted so that it would only keep the most recent n log entries and then i would take that and i would get get rid of the older things uh rewrite the log file moving the most recent n logs down and then be appending the new log freshly to the top of the log and i thought uh really so i put that out to the group uh, at, at the grc spinrite.dev group i don't think i've ever had a hundred percent consensus on no <laughs> this is not what we want anymore so the the, the new spinrite 61's new logging approach uh just does sequentially numbered logs it looks at the at the highest numbered log file it can find on the boot media, which is where it logs back to, and just chooses the next one. You know, it's time and date stamped because it's a file, uh, one file per drive. You'll have the option of making it one file per use of Spinrite, since one use of Spinrite could run on multiple drives. That's the only choice you have. Instead of retain N prior logs, which didn't make any sense to anybody anymore. So, anyway, that was one of the entries and in the, in the process i got I simplified the code i just threw away all that old code that was doing all this crazy log file manipulation and don't have to bo- do it don't have to bother with it now on june 9th i said gang uh oh this was srv 6.1 progress report june 9th uh so earlier this month what uh a little over two weeks ago i wrote i'm glad i'm doing this it's tedious but necessary. Everywhere I turn, the code needs to be rewritten or edited. So I'm just plowing forward, fixing everything I encounter. I'm no longer trying to get something for everyone to test. There was too much interdependence for that to be feasible. Or as I wrote before, one thing leads to another. In order to catch every instance of something that needs changing... I changed the name of a variable to force assembly errors due to the old name no longer existing. That's necessary because the old variable might have been 16 bits, and the new one needs to be 64. But it means that a daunting list of errors results from every reference to the now gone obsolete variable so then i move through one by one addressing each of the references to the old variable i'm currently working to fix all references to the to the what was previously operating location low and operating location high variables 
they were each originally 16 bits back in the pre 32 bit days, right? Because this thing ran on an 8086 that didn't have any 32 bit math or registers. So I had to have two variables operating location low, operating location high, each 16 bits. So now I needed. Uh, oh, and so they are both being replaced by a single 64-bit transfer location variable. And I said, I've been working on this one for a few days, and I've whittled the list of assembly errors down to about 25% of what it was initially. When I finally emerge on the other side of the variable updating, we'll have a new foundation for probing generic mass storage. But at the moment, I cannot even estimate what percentage of the way through I am. At some point, I'll receive a welcome surprise that there are no more errors because all references to the new variables will have been encountered and recoded. The problem, of course, is that even though I have and will be as careful as possible, I will have inevitably introduced some new errors. So it will be necessary for me to step through the code to watch everything work at least once. And that's fine, too, since once that's done, that new mass storage foundation will be real, solid, and functional. And then I'll be able to get back to the area I was excited about earlier, where a single I.O. abstraction procedure hides all of the details of drive access behind it will lie handlers for BIOS, PCI IDE, and AHCI SATA drives, and adding handlers for USB and NVMe, and who knows what else in the future, will then be very straightforward. Two days later, on June 9th, I I posted Spinrite's source code line counts. I said, gang, during my after-dinner walk with Lori, I mentioned that once things had stabilized and settled down with Spinrite, that is to say, once I kind of thought I was done, I planned to read the source from top to bottom to find anything that I hadn't addressed. She asked how long the source code was, and I didn't know. So I just did a quick line count to see. I wonder what she thought you would answer. Like, well, it's uh, 500 pages. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's just like, well, how long is how that? Long you know, because, you know, someone she cares about is going to read something. Yeah. How long is that going to be? It's surprisingly so, uh, short. It's really more a short story than a novel, I would say. That's right. Well, so I, uh, I, uh, I clicked the... Uh, I, 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 in the in the show notes for anyone who's interested, I have a a link that I posted as part of the posting. Since the news groups are text only, it Spinrite currently has a line count of twenty seven thousand five hundred and fifty six lines. Oh, that's, that's a good number of lines. Now that's not all code, since my especially my newer code tends to have longer comment blocks mm. at the top of procedures to explain anything that the procedure's long name doesn't already make clear. At the same time, I, I heavily comment the the ends of my lines, but those won't show up as additional line counts. So it does give some sense for Spinrite's source code base. I excluded a handful of files of UI content, uh, the screens, the screen composition definitions, and the text that fills them since they aren't code. And 
most of them aren't changing. Basically, the UI is pretty much the only thing that is surviving this conversion of Spinrite 6 to 6.1. And even that has had a lot of facelift already. Uh, I wrote, in the beginning, Spinrite was mostly a single sr.assem file. And you can see that heritage since sr.assem remains by far the largest single file at 8,652 lines. Yeah, I noted, I've been breaking- I noted that. What is, is, that the, is that the main code? Yeah. Kind of? Uh, yeah. It used to be, there used to be like one code file, sr.assem, and then a whole bunch of UI files. Um, but I've been breaking it apart into smaller, more manageable and functional pieces during this recent work. So things like math.assem and mem.assem, which were once part of sr.assem, are now separate files. I broke them out since they needed lots of reworking and rewriting. You can imagine that like all the math had to be updated and, and all the memory management needed to be fixed. So I'd love anyway, to see some of this source. You don't ever publish any of it, do you? Uh, I know it's I proprietary. Yeah, I haven't, but I, 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 I would mind, bit. you know, Just a little sharing bit. some. Some yeah, of it. It is. It is. Put fun it in your will at. when you pass on. So, you know, let. Oh, let's I'm open definitely. I, I am. I'm definitely going to release the source good, once good. there. There's no more like uh, ongoing commercial work for me. Uh, that that is, would be great. I've, st- I've stated that uh, pub- publicly to the gang. Excellent. So, yep. Nice. And I'd like it to outlive me. It looks like it might, yeah. actually. So well, you, you've certainly uh, anyway, so, it. Boy. Oh, yeah. It's going to – I'll be proud, actually, to, to release it. So, okay, so the, the final one, my most recent note from last Thursday, June 17th. I said, gang. And, and this was titled, Another Update. I wrote, I figured that since I've done something else again – I ought to loop everyone in on what's been going on. And and I should explain. I mean, I work on this thing 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. I mean, so so for me, even though that was a week ago with the previous update, everything has changed since then. I mean, like, you know, because so many hours have happened. So I said, gang, I figured that since I've done something else again, I ought to loop everyone in on what's been going on. As I wrote previously, I updated everything to handle the shift from 32-bit sector addressing to 64 bits. After finishing that, I returned to the work on the I.O. abstractor, which will be providing a uniform interface between Spinrite and all current and future drives and technologies. The trouble I then encountered... Was with was with exactly I wanted the abstracted I/O to do things like did I want the full block transfer to always start at the beginning of the transfer block or at an arbitrary sector offset? Did I want the single sector transfer to transfer to and from a single sector buffer or to and from an offset within the full block transfer buffer? And where did I want the Dynastat functions to place their transfer sample data? The point was, I was developing an abstract function to do whatever Spinrite needed. But unlike the system's underlying I.O. that is generic and doesn't know anything about Spinrite, I could design these 
abstract functions, or actually this one abstract function, to do exactly what Spinrite needed. But I couldn't answer those questions of what Spinrite needed until I took a close look at Spinrite's core work loop to remind myself what exactly it was doing and how. I had been avoiding doing that since I had been hoping (laughs) to leave it as much as is as possible. Of course, I knew what it was doing broadly, but I hadn't looked at it closely under the new pure linear addressing mode approach. Because that's that's the big thing that's changed, is that, you know, the BIOS only sees things as cylinder heads and sectors, that the traditional so-called 3D addressing, um, there there's an extension to it that kind of makes it linear, but it's very poorly supported. That didn't really happen much. Mostly add-on cards that, that you know would bring a BIOS along, but the motherboard never bothered to, because as long as you can boot the OS, who cares anymore? So... Anyway, so the point was that I had, that the group already knew that that I had recognized the only way to go forward was to scrap this l- cylinder head and sector approach, which absolutely bears no relationship to reality any longer. All drives are LBA, linear block addressing, NVMe, linear block addressing, you know, anything that we're talking to, linear block addressing. So... I said, uh, I said the short version is it all had to go. Nothing about the way it was written 34 years ago still made sense today. And even though Spinrite went through five major feature upgrades, the last one was 17 years ago, half of its 34 life year life half of its 34 year life ago as we know spinrite's original mission was to non-destructively low-level reformat drives it did this one track at a time it would read all of the data from a track really really reading it no matter what then it would low-level reformat that one track which might cause verified defective sectors to be moved into different logical sectors and previously good logical sectors to suddenly become defective due to reinterleaving. So Spinrite untangled all of that, rewrote the track's data back to the track, then moved on to the next track, and so on until it was finished. Even though Spinrite has not been doing much of that for quite some time, all of that logic had remained essentially unchanged until now. Spinrite's original philosophy had never been updated. It hadn't been getting in the way, but neither has Spinrite been operating at nearly the speed and capacity that its new drivers will now enable. I suppose an analogy might be We've been we've built powerful new jet engines, but we can't really hang them onto the balsa wood body that was sufficient when it was being powered by rubber bands. An example would be that Spinrite's track buffer was a single 64K segment. Since transfers cannot cross a segment boundary, this was 
an absolute limit. 64K is 128 sectors, so no transfer could be larger than 128 sectors. But now we come along with 32,768 sector transfers into 16 megabyte buffers. There's just no way for Spinrite's existing core code to deal with that change. And when Spinrite was zipping along on a drive, it was doing track-by-track transfers. But if it hit any trouble on a track, since Spinrite was always track-based, it would drop out of track mode into sector mode, where it would assess each of the track sectors one by one to determine what to do about that track. But it makes no sense when we're transferring 32,768 sectors at a time to, quote, drop into sector by sector mode for all of the buffers, probably fine, 32,768 sectors. So the new Spinrite will have restartable mass block transfers where a problem sector will stall the transfer, will work on that one sector, then resume the mass transfer with starting with the sector that follows. Anyway, I wrote, the point is, this exactly matches the evolution of our media, and there's no getting around the fact that it needed to be done. So, although I have not yet rewritten the new inner core for Spinrite, I have completely specified its operation and design. So I now know exactly what the new IO abstraction layer will need to provide to it, and I'm back to work on that. So anyway, that's my most recent project status posting to the grc.spinrite.dev news group. Um, you know, and if it sounds like I'm pretty much rewriting Spinrite, then you have a pretty accurate sense for what I've been doing and for what was needed. There really wasn't any way to just quickly graft on the new stuff for that I had promised for this no-charge version 6.1 release. And the earlier discovery that Spinrite can repair solid-state media and also our more recent discovery that it's going to be able to sense when specific regions of apparently healthy solid-state media are actually slipping into trouble means that there's a lot of life left in Spinrite. So, yes, I'm investing hugely, ridiculously, actually, in the work for a free upgrade. But I have no problem with that. Since the moment 6.1 is launched, I'm going to set out about, I'm going to set to immediately moving Spinrite over to its new home. That pure 32 bit real time embedded operating system that will be able to dual boot on either BIOS or UEFI systems, then immediately add native support for USB and NVMe hardware interfaces then work to to bring those subtle solid-state read timing anomalies we discovered into Spinrite's UI, both to display those speed variations and to then selectively rewrite them, which we have already confirmed in a very blunt way, actually does restore their speed and almost certainly improves their long-term readback reliability. 
And if I sound excited, you're right about that, too. Spinrite has 34 years behind it so far. I suspect it's going to easily hit 40 and probably go beyond. So that's where we are. So you just described a decade-long plan, I think, roadmap. (laughs) I'm saying. I'm just saying. I'm being optimistic here. (laughs) That's well, good. I want to keep you employed, fully employed. Uh, I, I, we do not need to. I mean, I'm having so much fun being back to it. Yeah, yeah. I love to code. I, 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 I settle down here. Lori is great about you know getting me out of the house in the morning. I, I, I make myself a, a latte. I settle down here. Uh, I, I, and I just I feel so good. It's like I after nice, a squirrel where I felt like I was stealing time from spin right now. I'm finally doing what I'm supposed this to be doing. This is your real mission. I yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it just yeah. it makes sense, and I just I just love it. So anyway, that's where the it, that's where the time is going. Uh, basically, everybody is going to get for free <laughs> a radically brand new like spin right no new program yeah it is yeah. uh but i did promise it uh and uh you know moving forward everyone's also going to want seven so i'm not worried about you know giving all this work away for free because it's just a tease really i mean it is what i promised i would do but it's also a tease to seven because wait till you see what i'm going to make spin right seven do yay yeah Squirrel was actually okay. named, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Unconsciously so, but I think actually Okay. Named. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good. No, you know what? Uh, you you got to have uh, you got to have a hobby. That's well, what I'm saying. Well, I I for, for with Squirrel, I mean, and and I've I've thought about this. I couldn't very well drop it when it was half done no because no. then we'd, we'd have nothing thank god you're persistent absolutely i yeah. never get i never quit yeah that's really uh i quit everything so <laughs> i really admire your, well. your instinctuitiveness <laughs> i have yet to finish a, a coding project not one <laughs> Spinrite has been the miracle of my life yeah, i have yeah. wondered like what would i have I, i'm sure i would have come up with something but i don't know what it would have been. It's and perfect. I'm glad no, no, this it is, was spin right. You are living your absolute best life. This is absolutely what you should be doing. There's just yeah, no because it does. It. It, it combines my love of hardware mm-hmm. and software, mm-hmm. and it's perfect. Good, finding good solutions. And At this point, forth, I so. doubt anybody understands how hard drives work better than you do. I mean, you really under uh, mass storage. Pardon me, because you've also done the, the uh, SSD I'm stuff. I'm sure that the engineers that are developing this stuff, yeah, but do. they're narrow. See, you have to be. You have to know uh, the entire range of possibilities. Well, a perfect example is that although it was painful, <laughs> I have one AHCI driver that runs on everything. Right. Everybody perfect. else has AHCI right. drivers. Specific. I don't yeah. need them. Yeah. I solved one problem that runs on everything. Yeah. And again, so that, you know, that's the way I work is it's harder, but, you know, it, it, we end up with something that has, you know, incredible longevity. I mean, Spinrite 6, 17 years, and Spinrite itself, 34. It's amazing. It's, like, it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, and it doesn't look thank like you. it's over yet either. On behalf so. of all of us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, we're going to see a transformation 
in ransomware. Uh, I, I talked about in the first half. Um, here's some interesting insider information. So a month ago, while it was still running hard, Sophos, as part of their new What to Expect series, posted what to expect when you've been hit with Avadon ransomware. They wrote, this is Sophos, Avadon Ransomware is a ransomware-as-a-service that combines encryption with data theft and extortion. Avadon has been around since 2019, but has become more prominent and aggressive since June of 2020. Okay, so think about that. One year, June of 2020. Affiliates or customers of the service, have been observed deploying Avadon to a wide range of targets in multiple countries, often through malicious spam and phishing campaigns that carry booby-trapped JavaScript files. Organizations hit with Avadon ransomware face more than just data encryption. There is also the threat of public data exposure on the Avadon leak site, And more recently, the risk of distributed denial-of-service attacks disrupting operations. These tactics are designed to increase pressure on victims to the ransom demand. The following information may help IT admins facing the impact of an attack with Avadon ransomware. And And they titled in italics, or they added in italics, According to reports appearing from May 17th, 2021, so just the previous month, the operators behind Avadon ransomware have taken the service private, possibly by being more selective about affiliates and their targets. And they have said, we will not support attacks on sectors such as government, healthcare, educational, and charity organizations. So that's interesting. Last month, Avadon was viewed as a real threat on the RAS landscape. In fact, Malwarebytes wrote, If you may recall, Avadon is a big game hunting, so now we have the abbreviation again, BGH, Ransomware as a Service, R-A-A-S, tool that the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, and the Australian Cyber Security Center, the ACSC, warned organizations about last month. Malwarebytes wrote, while various sectors of Australia were noted to be particularly targeted, the Avadon strain has been instrumental in the successful network compromise of the Asian division of the AXA Group, one of the biggest cyber insurance companies in the world. Avadon threat actors were able to extract information about what appears to be client info, password, passports, bank account information, ID cards, contracts, fraud-related hospital files, and other medical reports containing sensitive data about patients and more. Coincidentally, this attack came close to a week after the insurance giant announced that it would cease covering customers in France who pay up after being attacked by ransomware. 
an insurance company refusing to cover for any monetary loss over a cyber attack will no doubt significantly increase the likelihood of victim companies refusing to cough up money to ransomware gangs. And they finish Shepesy Communication, an Australia-based telecom service provider, was also hit by Avedon last month after its platinum partner, Telestra, fell victim to a ransomware attack by the same group. The criminals claimed to have access to data of a large amount of SIM cards, mobile devices, contracts, and banking information, to name a few. When the company refused to pay the demand, their official website was downed by distributed denial-of-service attacks, taking their website offline for several days. Okay, so according to the FBI, Avedon ransomware actors have compromised victims through remote-access login credentials, such as remote desktop protocol and private virtual network credentials. After Avedon actors gain access to a victim's network, they map the network and identify backups for deletion and or encryption. The malware escalates uh, its privileges, contains anti-analysis protection code, enables persistence on a victim's system, and verifies the victim is not located in Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS, countries. Finally, a copy of the victim's data is exfiltrated before the victim's systems are encrypted. Um, So I thought that Malwarebytes' use of the big game hunting BGH was interesting, especially in light of the fact that these guys have made what was probably the same mistake that the Dark Side gang made. They became too high-profile. Their attempt to take their operation private last month was likely their means of hoping to regain control over their out-of-control affiliates who were attacking irresponsibly, or at least without apparent regard for social responsibility, which, lo and behold, as I noted earlier in the wake of Darkseid and JBS, has suddenly become a thing that ransomware attackers need to consider. And then, Friday before last, on the 11th, we received some surprising news from Bleeping Computer, who had themselves received a surprise gift. Um, Lawrence Abrams, the founder of Bleeping Computer, wrote, The Avedon ransomware gang has shut down operation and released the decryption keys for their victims to Bleeping Computer. This morning, Bleeping Computer received an anonymous tip pretending to be from the FBI that contained a password and a link to a password-protected zip file. This file claimed to be the decryption keys ransomware Avedon and contained three files. After sharing the files with Fabian Wosar of MSysoft and Michael Gillespie of Coveware. They confirmed that the keys are legitimate. Using a test decryptor shared with Bleeping Computer by MSysoft, I, wrote Lawrence Abrams, decrypted a virtual machine encrypted with a recent sample of Avedon. In total, he wrote, the threat actor sent us 2,934 
decryption keys, where each key corresponds to a specific victim. Emsisoft has has released a free decryptor that all victims can use to recover their files for free. While it doesn't happen often enough, he wrote, ransomware groups have previously released decryption keys to bleeping computer and other researchers as a gesture of goodwill when they shut down or release a new version. Over time, Avedon has grown grown into one of the larger ransomware operations, with the FBI and Australian law enforcement recently releasing advisories related to the group. And I think that may be the key. At this time, all of Avedon's Tor sites are inaccessible, indicating that the ransomware operation has likely shut down. Furthermore, ransomware negotiation firms and incident responders saw a mad rush by Avedon over the past few days to finalize ransom payments from existing unpaid victims. To me, that sounds like they were given a deadline. So, he finishes, Coveware CEO Bill uh, Siegel has told Bleeping Computer that Avedon's average ransom demand was around 600 k However, over the past few days, Avedon has been pressuring victims to pay and accepting the last counteroffer without any pushback, which Siegel states is abnormal. And he finishes, it's not clear why Avedon shut down, but it was likely caused by the increased pressure and scrutiny by law enforcement and governments worldwide after recent attacks against critical infrastructure. MSISOFT's threat analyst Brett Callow told Bleeping Computer, the recent actions by law enforcement have made some threat actors nervous. This is the result. One down, and let's hope some others go down too. And this brings us to the view from Russia. With a lot of interesting inside information brought to us by two Russians, Vitaly Kremez and uh, Valesi Bogoslavsky. Together, they run ADV Intel, a contraction of advanced intelligence, A-D-V-I-N-T-E-L. And they offer unique insight thanks to having access to unique data and players in their home country. They explain why it all comes down to one thing and why I titled this podcast Avedon Ransonomics. So I've edited and tweaked their write-up, uh, actually in some cases significantly, to fix some minor Russian as their first language errors and to clarify things here and there, but it's essentially untouched. They begin by explaining the ransomware gang's name. The three-letter Hebrew root A-V-A-D, and that's four letters, but okay, from which the name Avedon is derived, has two main semantic interpretations, to destroy and to lose or get lost. Indeed, they wrote, these two meanings perfectly define the Avedon ransomware, a destructive and malicious force which always managed to conceal and disappear. They wrote, Today we shed light on this lost and hidden criminal empire using unique data sets, 
the full list of Avedon victims ever targeted by the group over the year of its existence, discovered by Adv Intel. This unique SIGINT data is supported by exclusive HUMINT findings, statements made by the Eastern European underground cyber community leaders who worked with Avedon, explaining and interpreting the group's rapid rise and even more rapid downfall. On June 11, 2021, Avedon released keys for over 2,000 victims containing the exact company breach names. Our analysis of the confirmed victimology shows that some of them are the world's leading companies. How did this group succeed in hitting so many companies within a year? The answer is, Avedon created an entire ecosystem around themselves, a web of supply chains, international affiliates, sellers, underground auction managers, and negotiators. They have established an organic ecosystem of criminal extortion economy, a form of ransonomics. Of course, Avedon was not the only group pursuing a diversified approach to building a larger business system. However, they were likely the most creative ones. They were the only Russian-speaking group that that enabled but promoted international partners joining the team as affiliates that directly represented the coverage of Avedon's attacks reaching five continents. One of Avedon's largest attacks on a major financial institution occurred in May of 2021. Of course, that's the attack on AXA. It illustrates this integrated approach of building the ransomware attacks economy. While investigating the AXA attack, they wrote, We discovered 141 unique indicators for RDP compromises for the victim's domain. This means that Avedon was using the services of an RDP brute forcing group. Moreover, two weeks before the attack, a threat actor conveniently published a post on a major underground forum where Avedon was based, auctioning classified information on the future victim. This access seller happened to be connected to a malware developer specializing in data exfiltration tools. In other words, before Avedon performed their data-stealing operation, they were able to utilize the the entirety of underground services and purchase the full set RDP access, direct network access, and malware for data exfiltration. This innovation approach enabled Avedon to perform several thousand attacks. Adv Intel has analyzed Avedon's victims' unique data sets to build the most definitive adversarial profile. Traditionally, while profiling the group's victimology, companies rely on the data available on public, i.e. ransomware websites. And indeed, even looking at this partial data, which only includes companies whose information was dumped on the, on the shame blogs, we can see that Avedon played a major role in the threat landscape. However, the victims whose names were published on the shame blog are only the tip of the iceberg. Adv, Adv, Adv Intel's data advanced data set covering all 
Avaton Victims provides further visibility into the gang's operations. For this statistical research, Adv Intel has selected a special high-value target data set. First, we defined the industries which were the primary targets for the group, manufacturing, retail, technology, and engineering being the most preferred sectors, most likely because, for the companies of these sectors, even a brief interruption of business can imply fatal consequences. For the next step, we performed market research of the victim's revenue to identify the potential pattern of Avedon attacks. The total revenue of all victims was around, and this is aggregate total earnings over their life, $35 billion U.S. dollars. This is the segment of the market which has been in one way or another threatened by Avedon's malicious operations. Avedon's victims can be divided into three categories, small, medium, and large. The average per victim lifetime revenue was $13 million U.S. dollars for small businesses, $187 million U.S. dollars for medium-sized businesses, and $3.7 billion U.S. dollars for large businesses. They said our next research goal was to calculate how much money the Avedon Group could make before their rapid retirement. We have utilized our previous knowledge from threat actor engagements to develop realistic formulas of ransom demand calculations supported by the actual Avedon cases. Traditionally, all Russian-speaking actors are using the victim's annual revenue to calculate the ransom. After identifying the revenue, they investigate the sector within which the victim operates. The most common calculation, which according to our sensitive and credible source intelligence, as used by Avedon, was the so-called 5 by 5 rule, where 5% of the, of the target's annual revenue is used to start the negotiations with annual revenue estimated as one-fifth of the total historical revenue. In other words, for a victim which has a total lifetime revenue of $7 million U.S. million, the starting ransom price will be $70,000 U.S. dollars. Typically, Avedon dropped the price during bargaining, and the end ransom was around $50,000 U.S. dollars for a successful operation. However, not all companies out of the 2,000 victim list were forced to pay such ransom. In many cases, the negotiation failed, or the ransom was minimal, several thousand U.S. dollars, especially in the beginning. At the same time, bigger payments were demanded from larger entities. Here, the 5 by 5 formula would be replaced by a more tempered scale for larger ransom involving 0.01% margins for annual revenue instead of 5%, etc. So, for a multi-billion dollar company, the demand was constrained to a few million dollars. After finalizing the, cal the calculations with a case-by-case -case study, each victim from the high-value data set, Adv Intel assessed that the bulk of ransom payments came from over a thousand 
smaller size companies, from which was demanded between $30,000 to $70,000, and constituted the overall aggregate payment of $55 million over its lifetime to Avedon. Over the 500 larger businesses in the victim list, that constituted another $30 million, and the rest was divided between smaller payments. Our assessment of Avedon's lifetime, approximately one year, income, is therefore approximately $87 million U.S. dollars. Our team has also attempted to calculate the, the revenue of a core Avedon team member based on these numbers. Within Avedon RAAS, over 70% of income went to affiliates. Therefore, the core team, and especially the leader of Avedon, received around $26 million. This number was likely divided between at least four individuals, which made the approximate annual income, that is for a year, $7 million U.S. dollars. For comparison, the median annual income in Russia is approximately $7,000 U.S. dollars. In other words, in one year of ransomware development, an Avedon member made the same money as an average Russian would make in 1,000 years. They wrote, this is the best illustration of how lucrative ransomware could be for the region. So they finish at length. If Avedon was so successful, what could have motivated them to quit? The likely answer is fear. U.S. law enforcement and the Biden administration became very upfront regarding future retaliatory measures against ransomware and the new angle in which ransomware is seen as essentially an act of terrorism. And remember, this is from two Russians. This new take, they write, on digital extortion from the world's leading superpower had a direct effect within the underground community. The above-mentioned ransonomics, which powered a carefully and meticulously built web of alliances and supply chains, began to rapidly fail. Software brokers refused to sell malware to ransomware groups. Forums banned ransomware-as-a-service partnerships, and affiliates were left without means and services to disseminate the payload. The cybercrime world has always been similar to piracy, and it has had its own black mark. But after the colonial pipeline incidents, ransomware was clearly carrying the same black mark for the first time. Avedon, which was in the center of the dynamic and turbulent ransomware ecosystem, quickly realized the risks they might face. This realization was likely caused by the recent intervention of politics into the cybercrime domain. Overall, the inner logic of the Russian security landscape presumes that a successful cybergroup will eventually become prominent enough to attract the state's attention. Usually, law enforcement will turn a blind eye to cyber operations unless these operations target Russian citizens or businesses. However, 
This status quo changed in May of 2021. Under the oh, after the admin of XSS, the largest dark web forum called for a ransomware ban, justifying it for political reasons. The community of digital extortionists in Russia was observed to go through stages of paranoia. This was also the result of multiple statements made in the last three months by the Russian government, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and by President Putin personally about establishing an international Russian-American initiative to establish a joint cybersecurity landscape. The Russian officials likely see this as a tool of de-escalating the U.S.-Russian relationships, especially in light of the upcoming Biden-Putin summit scheduled for June 16, 2021. Indeed, they wrote, the Russian government traditionally goes through rounds of escalation and de-escalation with the West. The escalation phase involving military maneuvers in the proximity of the Russia-Ukraine border and in northern Syria ended in April of 2021. Now the Kremlin, aiming to address severe challenges in the post-COVID economic recession and the turbulent domestic situation, is interested in creating a certain framework of stability in the international arena and ensuring stabilized relationships with the U.S. to avoid unnecessary pressure. Therefore, cybersecurity, a controversial issue for the U.S.-Russia relationship, is on the front lines of this de-escalation agenda. It is also noteworthy that some of the jurisdictions that were targeted by Avedon, Iran, China, and Turkey, also have strong geopolitical ties with Russia and act as Russian allies or critical economic partners. However, it's unclear if this could have led to any aggravation in the relationship between Avedon and the Russian state. Whatever the true rationale of the Russian politicians calling for international cybersecurity cooperation is, these recent statements have clearly had an impact on the underground cybercrime community. Adv Intel has tracked multiple discussions between top-tier actors working with Avedon who mentioned that one of the group's affiliates was apprehended by the Russian law enforcement on the eve of the U.S.-Russia summit and that further arrests may follow against the ransomware leaders in order to secure the political landscape. So, to me, it seems very clear that they were in a big hurry, Avedon was, to shut themselves down, thus that weird behavior that was seen in, in the last in, in the final days of Avedon, basically taking anything they could get from the remaining victims and then finally releasing all the keys because for whatever reason, they were going to be able for, like for some reason, they were going to be able to never get any more ransoms paid again hmm. and so they got they scraped up the 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 residuals that they could and then because they couldn't they they knew for whatever reason 
they were not going to get any more ransom payments. They just released the keys for free. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, this is not U.S. propaganda. This is two Russians with an, a, a Russian intelligence firm who have contacts, you know, who know the affiliates of Avedon who are saying, uh, it's gotten too hot. We, we can't do this. Putin says, you cut uh, cut it out for a little bit, okay? We'll get you later. <laughs> yeah. uh, very, very good stuff as usual, Steve. I really enjoyed the uh, the uh, update, too, on the spin ride. I can't wait to see uh, some more stuff from you. It's exciting. Oh, me, yeah. too. I'm going to yeah. go working on it this evening. Well, if you want to know more, if you want to get a copy of Spin Right and get the free upgrade, uh, all you have to do is go to grc.com. Forums.grc.com. You can read up on it, uh, keep up with what Steve's doing, because he does post uh, regularly to the forums. Uh, and also, while you're there, you can get a copy of the show. Steve's got a couple of unique formats. He's got the 64-kilobit audio like we do, but he also has a 16-kilobit audio, very small audio files. a little scratchier, but if you don't have a lot of bandwidth, it might save you some uh, download speeds, some download time. Uh, he also has the uh, human written transcripts. Elaine Ferris does a great job with those, so you can read along as you listen. Uh, That's all at grc.com. You can leave feedback for Steve at grc.com slash feedback or on his Twitter account. His DMs are open. His uh, Twitter uh, handle is sggrc. We have 64 kilobit audio and video as well on our website, twit.tv slash sn. We do the show uh, Tuesdays right after Mac Break Weekly. So that's usually around 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 20.30 uh, UTC. If you want to tune in and uh, watch it live, there's a live audio stream and video stream at twit.tv slash live. People who watch live often like to chat with others who are watching live. A couple of places to do that are IRC, of course, is open at irc.twit.tv. If you're a member of Club Twit, we also have a Discord. Always a lot of fun in there. Uh, that's for members, uh, but membership is not too onerous. It's about uh, 7 bucks a month. You get ad-free versions of all the shows, audio or video. You also get the Discord and a special Twit Plus feed with things that uh, didn't make it to the podcast. A lot of times there's some good conversations before and after shows. Find out more about Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. And thanks in advance for your support. That's the real reason to do that, uh, Just to, just to keep us... Keep the podcasts going and the good times are flowing. Uh, what else? There's a YouTube channel with all the videos there. Actually, if you go to twit.tv slash SN, you'll find a link to the YouTube. You'll find a, a direct link to various podcast players, but also an RSS link you can add to any podcast player. Really, subscribing is probably the easiest way to make sure you get your weekly fix of security now. And if your podcast program has a reviews section do us a favor leave a five-star review for steve i think he earns that every single week absolutely thank you steve have a great week i will see you next week on security now bye hey if you like tech news but you also like hearing about it from the people who are actually writing the stories well i've got a show for you it's called tech news weekly and it's me jason howell along with my co-host micah Sargent. every week we invite the people making and breaking the biggest tech news stories from around the web onto this show uh, to talk to us about it it's a lot of fun you should check it out tech news weekly can be found at twit.tv slash 
TNW every Thursday. We'll see you then. Security now.